Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. When I started uh, diving into the, the message this week, I looked at this word joy. And I went directly to the dictionary because everyone's got their own version of what the, the word joy might mean, right? Some people it's happiness, some people it's, you know, um, you know, exuberance or whatever. But so I wanted to see what the actual definition of the word was. And that's kind of odd in our time frame because if, you know, in the last, you know, four or five years, even in the last few months, there's been a lot of terms and a lot of words that have had their definitions changed by people who are on you know, who, by academia, by people who are online and, and positions of politics and things like that. And so if you don't have like an old school dictionary, you're never going to know that it was changed when they changed the definition of words online, right? So I went and I looked up online. Uh, I went and looked up my old school dictionary that I used to use when I was in high school, which was only four or five years ago. Um, but I, <laughs> he's, really, he's really tickled by that one. It's only four or five years ago. Um, if you believe that, I've got some motions from property right out here to sell you. Um, but, you know, I went and looked up the old Merriam-Webster dictionary, right? Like the, the old school one. And I typed in the word joy. And I think it's the first time I've ever looked at the definition of a word in my life and thought, I don't know if that's right. And I mean, who am I, right? I'm just a guy, you know, doing some research and getting ready for a message and stuff. But how am I supposed to be, you know, looking at the definition of these words and go, I don't think that's right. And I'll tell you why, because we wrote it down here in your notes. The, the, first, the first definition of the word, you, if you do it right now or not right now, but after the service later on, and go to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary website and type in joy, the very first thing that's going to pop up is this definition. It's the first line here in your notes. The emotion invoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. The emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. And you may read that definition and go, how come you don't like that definition, Matt? Well, here, there's two reasons I don't like that definition. First and foremost, it's, it, it defines it as an emotion. I don't know that joy is an actual emotion. Happiness is an emotion, and joy is something that can fuel that emotion. But I don't know that it actually is an, a real emotion because could you just wake up one morning and go, man, I'm joyful. And then you just go, oh, man, it passed. And then my, the joy is gone. Because I think as we mature as believers, I think that might be what children think. But I think as, um, as we mature as believers and mature as people, that there are, is, there are opportunities for us to go, it's a little bit deeper than that. The other reason I don't really like the definition is because it's an emotion that's invoked by the prospect of possessing what one desires. What if what you desire is not good? What if what you desire is not beneficial for you? Let me give you kind of a crazy analogy, but I think you'll follow me on the point. If somebody walked in here and said, I just would love a pet rattlesnake. Actually, I want two of them. Chippy's in the back there going, mm-mm, I rebuke it, Jesus, because he hates snakes just like me. But, he, but we're gonna put, I'm going to take two rattlesnakes, and I'm going to put them in my lap. 
and I want to eat dinner with these rattlesnakes in my lap, and I want to binge watch The Office before network, uh, Netflix loses the license in November and you can't watch it anymore. And then um, I want to sit here and talk to my friends and be on the phone. I want to pet the snake and everyone. It'll just be great, and it will be great until, wham, that thing glaxes onto your arm and starts sinking its fangs in there and pumping your body with poison. You're at the hospital or worse, right? You got what you wanted, but it's not good for you. In a more realistic kind of, kind of, kind of turn, you could, I, I've, I've talked to and heard the story of countless people who say, I have pursued something that I always wanted with my life. And many times I've, I've heard people say, I pursued money, I pursued materialism, I pursued all these different things. And when I got them, I went, oh wait, this is it? I know I heard a story of a guy who made a million dollars, and I would like to be this guy because I think I would feel differently, but he made his million dollars, his first million, and he went, oh, I thought I'd be happy here. Maybe it'll come at 10 million. So he worked harder and harder and harder and made it to 10 million. And when he hit that $10 million threshold, he sat back in his chair and was like, I made it, but nothing. He said, maybe it's a hundred million and he actually made it to a hundred million dollar net worth. And when he realized he had hit that point, he sat back and said, I have been chasing this, this number, this benchmark, this success point, this goal line my entire life. I have achieved everything I put my mind to, what I put my attitude to, what I put my desire in. I got what I wanted and there was no joy. There was no satisfaction. I know too many people like that to be able to look at this word joy and go, yeah, it's an emotion that you have when you get what you want. Mm -mm. Because sometimes, like those guys I was talking about who got everything they wanted, they looked up one day and had no relationship with their wife, had no relationship with their kids, had no relationship with God, and they had sacrificed every friendship that ever mattered to them because the goal was so stinking important. They wanted to get what they wanted, and when they got it, there was no joy. None. So it forces me to look away from this skewed definition that our world holds even in the dictionary, and it forces me to look at Scripture and there's many words in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic that, um, uh, not so much Aramaic, but Hebrew and Greek, the original languages of the Bible, that, um, uh, that are rooted and translated into our one English word, joy. And as I got through, the, got through them this week and started reading and studying about them, there's probably, you know, if I put them all together in one, you know, long list, it'd be probably a dozen, maybe 15 different words that kind of point towards what joy were, was, but there was only two words that kept repeatedly coming up in the definitions, and that's the two that we're going to use here tonight. So the Bible's definition of joy, it's the next line in your, your notes, is delight and gladness. Delight and gladness. When I think about delight, I think about if you're not a parent, you probably know a parent and maybe have seen them do this. But if you're a parent, just think back with me real quick. Remember when your child was, 
was the little baby, you know, and it's still in diapers and learning how to walk, much like Christiani running around here tonight. And, you know, the first time for us, we took, you know, our son to uh, the Desert Ridge, you know, um, marketplace right after they put those sprinklers and those fountains in the ground. And so um, there's this place out there with 20 or 25 fountains and all these water things shoot up out of the ground and the kids run through it, especially in the summer here in Phoenix. And they, they play and they splash in the water. And I remember the first time looking at him going through these these uh, things, the splashing in this splash pad in this water, and he had no clue how the plumbing worked. He had no clue how the, the water was on like a timer or something like that. And he had no clue how it would, how it really worked, but he knew that he would chase after this one stream of water and it would go away. And then something behind him would turn up that would pop up and he would just kind of squeal with joy. You know what I mean? He'd just be happy and he'd chase it around. It was just carefree and it was just great to watch. And as a parent, you get to sit back and go, man, I am delighting in watching him experience this for the first time, watching her experience this for the first time, because someone and something I love is now introduced to something that they've never understood, and there's still a bunch of wonder in their eyes, and you look as a parent and you go, man, I just my heart does good when that happens. I am delighting in their enjoyment. When you talk about delight and gladness, that is a great place to start for a reference for what we are supposed to be doing and the second fruit of the Spirit that's supposed to be growing in us. The first one's love. The second one's joy. So what I want to do is I want to take a look tonight. Um, Our message title is I Choose Joy, but I want to look at three reasons tonight that we should choose joy. Okay, so number one here in our notes. We should choose joy because God adopted us. Because God adopted us. Now, it's really important that you understand that I on purpose didn't say that we're God's children. Because there's a scripture that points directly to this, and it was something that it was uh, very, very significant in the time of the Roman Empire when the Bible, when our New Testament was predominantly written. So, in the Jewish culture... The, the idea of adoption wasn't very common. Didn't happen a whole lot. But in the Roman world, adoption was a significant practice. Next on your note, significant practice. See, when people get old today, which is other people and not me, um, but when people get old today and you know, their life is winding down and they're, they have possessions or money or a house or cars or something and, they wanna, and they've written out a will... So when their life ends, people know how you want it to be distributed to your family or to, to whoever you want to get it. And today in our culture, this is a very common thing, and you can leave whatever you want to whoever you want. Like, if I was worth a million dollars, I could say, hey, give everybody that comes to RCC, you know, 10 grand or whatever. That's a hypothetical. Don't nobody strangle me after this service to get your money, but um, that's a complete hypothetical. But, you know, if, if you had two cars and you had two kids, you could leave one to one kid, one to another. If you had 50 grand, had five kids, you could leave 10 grand to them each. However it works, you can just do basically whatever you want. Donate it all to a charity, you know, do whatever you want. But during that time frame, there was some very specific laws in Rome. And one of those laws was this. A man had to leave 
his money to his son or sons. He couldn't leave it to his daughter. This is probably very painful because some of the daughters that watched their brothers get this money where they were better stewards at it, right? They were better you know, at managing it and better than, than, than holding on to it and, and navigating finances much better than them. But this was the law. And so the next line in your notes, I thought this was very interesting. If a man had no sons or if he felt that his sons were incapable of managing his wealth or unworthy of it, he would have to adopt someone who would make a worthy son. These adoptions, so if you have ever been involved in, the, um, in an adoption or somebody who has in our current culture or in the foster care system, what you'll notice is that the vast majority of people want to adopt or be a foster family for infants or very young children like toddlers. They want that because they want them to grow up in their, in their family and, and take on their values and be comfortable around. So adopting older children, you know, people in middle school, preteen, teenagers, the older they get, the less and less likely they are to actually be adopted in our culture. But in this culture, next line in your notes, older boys and or adult men were normally adopted. In some cases, the person being adopted, the adoptee, might even be older than the man who was adopting them. Now think about that for a second. If you're 35, you've accumulated a bunch of wealth, and you, you come down sick and you think you're going to pass away and you're not ready to leave like your teenage kids with all your wealth or whatever, your son's all the wealth, then what do you do? You go out and adopt a guy who's 43 to be your quote-unquote son. It seems like an odd thing for us today, but it was very common during this time frame. The last two things I thought were that interesting, and I put them here in your notes so we can understand why this uh, subject of adoption is important in Scripture, is this. When the adoption was legally approved, the adoptee would have all of his debts canceled, and he would receive a new name. He would be the legal son of the adopted father and entitled to all the rights and benefits of a son. That next line is this, a father could disown his natural born son, but an adoption was irreversible. Once that adoption went through, it could not be undone. So now, with that understanding of the culture that we're, that we're talking about, and with that, with that understanding of adoption in that time frame, let's read two passages from Paul out of the New Testament and let's see if it helps us gain some additional understanding of why he uses this topic of adoption. Romans 8, 15 through 17. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we, if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. This is Paul again talking to believers in Galatia. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law 
so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God sent his spirit, uh, the, the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Paul is talking to a group of people who are very well versed and understand completely the idea of adoption in their culture. He is telling them, hey, this is significant. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, you can become a child of God. It, doesn't, it has no bearing on whether you come to Christ, your age, your experience level, nothing. And the debts that you have, the debts that are specific to sin, which those debts are only paid through death because the wages of sin are death, those debts, when we come to God, are canceled. Those are canceled. He writes our name in his book for eternity. And when he adopts us, it becomes irreversible. There is no way that he will stand there and go, you know what, I really didn't want you in here. Just run along and cancel the adoption. It is an irreversible thing in their culture. And he's using this as a, as a way to explain the level of commitment that God has to us. Now, God also wants you. He didn't just get stuck with you. He, you just didn't say, I'm going to believe in Jesus, and then God go, oh, dang it, why did he, why did he do it? Oh, man, I didn't want him around here. Um, uh, okay, put him at the end of the table, but just don't feed him very much and see if he runs away. No, no, no. He wants everybody. Why? Because his word says that his, his will is that all people would come to repentance. All people would know him. And so he wants you and then when you when you get saved and become his child through faith in christ he rejoices scripture tell us that all of heaven rejoices because that adoption and his commitment to you is irreversible it doesn't go away the language of adoption is used on purpose and by design when we become children of god adopted into his family through christ he will never disown us. He never disowns us. Charles Spurgeon, if you've been in church long enough, you've probably heard this name before, but if you don't know who he is, he was a fairly famous preacher back in the mid-1800s. When he was asked about this, sub, this topic of, uh, of being adopted by Christ, here's what he said. It is the right and portion of every believer to live in the assurance that he is reconciled to God, that God loves him, and that he is God's child. And if he does not so live, he has himself only to blame. If there be any starving at God's table, it is because the guest stints himself or holds himself back, for the feast is super abundant. If you are someone who has given your life to God, but you still struggle with the fact of, am I worthy? Do I have to work to keep this salvation? Do I have to do something to prove to God that I'm still worthy of, of, of being his child? You know what? I don't want to ask him for much. I'm just going to push back. I'll take the scraps off the table. I'll stay outside with the servants. That is not your place. 
your place is at the table with your father. Come in from out of the cold. Stop digging around on the floor and scrounging for the scraps. Let him put his cloth of righteousness on you, which comes only through faith in Christ. Our righteousness is a filthy rags. Let him put that righteousness on us and pull your behind up to the table because that is where you belong. If you are a child of God, he has adopted you as a son or a daughter. Get to the table. Get to the table. When we feel like we don't belong, we are supposed to remember we are God's child. Let me say that again. We are God's child. He's keeping score. He sees the resistance the enemy is trying to place in front of us. He sees the physical and emotional struggles that we have ailing us. He sees the tears that have fallen to the floor in prayer for agony for those that we love, for friends, for co-workers who don't know Christ. He sees every single bit of it. Our Father created everything. He owns everything. He controls every breath in our lungs. And in the moments where we are overwhelmed by the worries and cares of this life, we need to remember whose we are. And whose we are is an adopted child of the almighty, all-powerful creator of the universe, God. And so if you are in the midst of a struggle, I am asking you, I am begging you, I am imploring you to remember who you are. I choose joy in the midst of chaos because I know I have been adopted by him. How in the world are you supposed to be happy in the midst of all the nuts stuff that's going on in your life or the things are falling apart or whatever it is, fill in the blank for you? How in the world are you supposed to do that? Because first and foremost, I am his child and I've got a seat at the table. No more living, uh, begging for something to happen. I got authority and a right to walk into his throne room at my time of need and say, Dad, I need help. And I got his full attention. I got his full attention. Why in the world do I choose joy? Because I remember whose I am. Number two. Second reason we should choose joy is because we have God's word. It's because we have God's word. I want to go back to an Old Testament story real quick and just give you a high-level overview of what's happening in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to, this deserves a far closer look and study and probably its own series later down the line, but that's not going to happen tonight. Just give you a quick understanding of what's going on in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a Jewish man who has just received word that the, the capital of Israel, his home nation, Jerusalem, has been... Siege, torn down, the city has been ransacked and left in ruins, and the protective wall that's around Jerusalem has been torn down. Now, during this time in history, many cities built these large fortress-style walls around the entire city so that no one could sneak in and try to attack the city without there being met with some initial level of resistance. Not only is Jerusalem in shambles, but the wall that protects them is down. And Nehemiah feels the prompting and the leading of God to go back and rebuild the wall. 
There's no point in rebuilding the city first. There's no point in putting homes back up and, and buildings back up and shops back up without that wall because they can become, they can be overrun and ransacked again. So he feels compelled to sit with the people of Israel and rebuild the wall. During the, the time of rebuilding this wall, he goes through all kinds of craziness. There's people who are threatening him, trying to in, intimidate him, and trying to get him and his people that he's leading to stop. This is a wonderful leadership book. If you're a leadership person or someone's in, in, in a position of management or overseeing people or working with people in some way, uh, this is a great study, and I encourage you to do it. But at this particular time, Nehemiah, he, he has heard these threats, he's heard these, these, um, uh, these in, intimidating words that have been transmitted to him and has been told and messages have been received by his men. And so what he does is he tells his men, put one hand on your sword, everyone's required to carry one, put one hand on your sword and the other hand to build the wall. It's kind of a metaphor to say, be ready to build or fight at any time. At some point in time, uh, after a certain length of days and weeks, the wall around Jerusalem is completely rebuilt. They have accomplished their goal, and the people of Israel gather together to, to celebrate and mark this as a, as a momentous occasion that the wall around Jerusalem has been, re, been rebuilt with Nehemiah and the people of God. Nehemiah steps forward in front of all the entire nation and he opens up God's word starting in the Old Testament. That's all they have. It's thought that he started in the Torah and he reads the Bible from early in the morning until noon. Not one more person in the history of American church should complain about the number of scriptures and a 40-minute message after knowing that. Right? Like Because these guys sat for five hours. These, there's a high probability these guys went through Leviticus. You ever tried to read that? Like, I'm trying to stay asleep just saying the word Leviticus, or trying to stay awake from falling asleep just saying that. <clears throat> these guys sat there, okay? At this point is where we enter the story. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. Now, here's what happens. The Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn and weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah continued, Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks, and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites too quieted the people, telling them, Hush, don't weep, for this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food, and celebrate with great joy because the wall was done? No. To celebrate with great joy because they had accomplished their goal? No, to celebrate with great joy because they had pushed past the intimidation of their enemies and accomplished what they set their mind to do. No, they celebrated with great joy because they heard God's word and understood them. 
When is the last time any of us, me included, have sat in a service and listened to someone preach the word and break it down to a point where you went, oh man, I understand that, and you left with joy celebrating and rejoicing that not only we got to hear God's word, but we now understand them in a way we didn't before. We don't do that because we are spoiled, stinking brats. Matt, you're kind of coming down on me kind of hard. No, listen. I wish I had a way to sit right here and show you the video. The the personal cell phone video of someone from the Chinese underground church when a man entered the room with a box of Bibles which are illegal for them to own. I wish I had the video. I sat and watched it in stunned amazement as these people, when they opened up the box, looked cautiously at each other first and then mobbed this man because all they wanted was some paperback copy of the Bible that they could have for themselves so that they would know the words of their Savior. I watched this lady who... um, crawl over to the box basically, take one, and then sit in the corner and clutch God's word to her chest and weep because she finally had a way to read God's word. And me, I got it on every device I have. At the swipe and a click of a button, I can instantly see it. I've got a Bible that I make notes in from my study, and I've probably got five or six sitting on a shelf over there. And if I don't get to it tomorrow morning, I go, I'll get it tomorrow. And here these people are in this foreign country today, begging, weeping with joy and gratitude that they have won. I spilled my coffee on. I'll, I'll go to Amazon and order another one. I'll be here in a couple days. We are so wildly spoiled with the freedom of access to God's Word that we have looked at it as if, it's all right, it's nothing. Nothing special. When the rest of the world pines to read the words of our Savior. Here we are with the the people of Israel in the book of Nehemiah celebrating with great joy because they heard God's word and understood them. When we open our Bible, we are holding the living, breathing word of God. His spirit inspired his men to write down his words, his commands, and his expressions to us. Us, when there are moments where I go, man, I'm in the midst of a hard time. Why in the world should I choose joy? Because God has given me the richest blessing outside of salvation, which is the, uh, the freedom to pursue, consume, memorize, and follow His Word without resistance. When I was a kid, we would sing those words. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Any church people grew up with that old, like, it's like a polka song. You know what I mean? Like, the joy of the Lord is my strength. You know, or something like that. Like, if you want joy, you must clap for it. You know, it was like, I was like, we were just one of the, woo, you know, like, so that's how the dance, I would feel like dancing to those kind of things. And I wouldn't dance because I'm terrible. But I would, I would, 
uh, grow up on those things. And so when I would hear the words, the joy of the Lord is my strength, I would go, if I'm happy with Jesus, I'm strong? Is that how that works? Because there are times I was happy with Jesus, and I sure didn't have any strength when it came to my temptation. What in the world does the joy of the Lord is your strength mean? Well, we know what the word joy means, delight and gladness. That word Lord, literally translated, is Jehovah, the God of the Bible. And that word strength has nothing to do with bench presses or squats or the size of your biceps. That word in the original language means shield, refuge, and hiding place. When we delight ourselves in Jehovah, He becomes our hiding place, our shield, and our place of refuge. That was completely different than what I was understanding. Because joy and happiness are not the same thing. Why in the world should we choose joy? Because we have His Word, and in His Word, He tells us that if you delight in me, I protect you. There are some people who think, man, I have been going through a time that feels like a desert, like a long time. It's like I'm walking through a dry land and the sun is beating down on me and I don't know if I can continue going through this type of season that I'm in. There's other people who think, man, I'm in the midst of a quote-unquote storm. Things are going chaotic around me. There's lightning, there's wind, there's hail, there's rain, and I'm getting drenched and pummeled and I don't know if I can continue to move on regardless of what scenario you're in when you delay light in Jehovah. He puts the roof over your head. If you're in the sun, he brings you from the outside to the inside to become your refuge and hiding place in the midst of the storm. And there is no way we understand that if we don't have his word. I choose joy because I have his word. Number three, last but not least, we should choose joy because we have God's promise. We have God's promise. Sometime in the future, I could probably do a a several-month series on going through the Scripture and talking about the the promises in God's Word that are given to us. I'm not going to do that today. I just want to talk about three of them real quickly. Actually, four of them. Letter A in your notes. One of the promises is this that we have as believers in Christ. Rest for your soul. Matthew 11, 28-29. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, which is his teaching, his way of living, upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Not might, not if you continue following me, it's gonna, it'll come little bits at a time. No, he says, if you do that, you will find rest for your souls. 
That is, when, when Jesus says something, when God says something through his word, that if you do this, I will do that. It is his promise because he's not a man that he should lie. When he speaks, it is an ironclad, verifiable, take it to the bank, cash the check moment because God is sitting at the place where it's already done. And he's telling you, hey, no, no cares for you. Be at rest for your soul because he already sits at that place and he's telling you from his sovereign, powerful knowledge what is already going to happen. Second promise, letter B, peace that guards your heart. Peace that guards your heart. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. What is that? What is that? Uh, what is peace guarding us from? The very first thing don't worry. The worry, the stress, the anxiety of what I'm going to do. How am I going to get out of this? How is this going to be solved? I am weary from trying to carry this burden. It is too heavy for me. So what am I going to do? Give it to him. I'm going to pray about everything. And I'm going to tell him what I need and thank him for what he's already done. At the end of that, there is a promise of peace will guard your heart. Let's paint a picture of that real quick. Let's say the front door, let's say our home here that we're all sitting in is, our, is a representation of our heart. And outside, worry, how is this going to work out? How am I going to navigate through this scenario? How is this going to play out long term? What what's going to happen? And, you know, there's so many possibilities of things that could happen. I don't know what, how this is going to lay out. but So worry is going to try to invite itself here in the front door. And if I am someone who has prayed, told God what I need, and thanked Him for all He has done, and stopped worrying because I know that I am His child, I have His word, and there are promises here, that, that peace, the biggest, baddest dude with all the weapons is going to step in front of that door and he's going to have peace across his shirt and say, worry, stress, and fear. Y'all puny little suckers, run somewhere else because you're not getting in here today. That is what it means when it says peace is guarding, running off the nonsense. That is a promise to you and to me. Let her see another promise. Wisdom for all who ask. <clears throat> Wisdom for all who ask. James 1, 5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. I wish everything was that cut and dry. Why in the world does it work like this? Because when we go to God and say, I need wisdom, it, it is an admission that I don't have it. 
When I go to God and ask him for wisdom, it is an admission that I know he's got it. And when God sees me humble myself and come to him and say, I know I don't have wisdom. I know you've got it all. Will you please give me some? Because I want to think like you. I want to operate like you. I want to move like you. I want to, to follow like you're leading me. God doesn't look at me and go, oh, well, let me just give him a little bit and tell him to run away because he's bothering. No, he goes generous and abundant. He pours out that wisdom on us. And then it says he won't rebuke you for asking. You ever done that as a kid? You walked up and asked your dad for something and you said, you're bothering me, son, get away from me. He could have been busy at that moment, could have been irritable, had a bad day, who knows? Our heavenly father who adopted you as his child never does that. He's got what you need. He wants to give it to you. He's waiting for you to come and ask, not because he wants to play this sick game of where he's in control. That humility and prayer opens that door for him to pour that wisdom out to you. I want to look back at these A, B, and C real quick. Do you notice anything about these three that are similar? A similar thread through here? How do you come to God? You pray. How do you tell God what you need? You pray. How do you ask Him for something? You pray. The root of all three of these promises is prayer. Prayer is the root for the promise to come. Prayer is the root for that promise to come. Pray about everything. Come to me. Don't worry. Tell me what you need. Thank me for all the things that I've already done. And then these promises are fulfilled in your life and in my life. He has a promise for you. The last one, letter D, is one I call the ultimate promise, and that is God's, uh, that, God, that God has to us. It's salvation through faith in Christ. <clears throat> now, this is, you know, this is probably not the, the greatest thing in the world to admit, but if there were a competition for overthinking, I would be the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. <clears throat> that would be a trophy no one would ever want to have, right? Like, like... Here's the grossest overthinker that you've ever seen in your life. Give it up for Matt Poole. Yeah, give him a trophy. You know what I mean? Like, that's to be like, I won, but I didn't want to win. You know what I mean? <clears throat> that would be me. Because I can take a scenario and pick that thing apart like taking chicken off of a chicken leg bone. Like, this is nasty, but I heard a Samoan guy say this one time. I'm married to a Polynesian, so don't nobody kill me for saying this, but use an example. I heard a Polynesian guy say one time that he takes the, the marrow, the joints, all the tendons, and he just eats all of it until that chicken leg bone is the cleanest thing in the world. It's so clean, the dog don't want it. There's nothing left. That, that right there is how your boy right here overthinks. He picks it all off the bone. And when we do that, and when I do that, I'm sure none of you have this issue, so just pray for me, but whenever I do that, 
what I wind up doing is forgetting the foundational principle and truth that starts everything. I can pick it apart and create a scenario that didn't have, that doesn't exist. And I can create the, the options that will happen inside of that scenario that doesn't exist. And I can create more options from the options of the option that doesn't exist. And I can just sit here all day and go just like this and be exhausted at the end of it because I let this thing run wild. And when I do that, I forget the core thing. And what's the core thing for us as believers? John 3, 16 through 18. For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through Him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in Him. But anyone who does not believe in Him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. That is the words of Jesus about the ultimate promise of salvation. And it gets dittoed by by Peter preaching a message in Acts chapter 4 verses 11 through 12. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scripture where it says the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. When you get to a point of overthinking, excuse me, when I get to the point of overthinking, I forget the most foundational principle and promise of all. I walk to the edge of the mountain like we talked last week, and I look over the sea and the horizon looking for the rain cloud, and I don't see anything, and my mind starts working and starts grinding me down and starts uh, punishing my own emotion and thoughts and brain with all of this stuff that doesn't exist, and I forgot the most fundamental promise at that moment that I am his and eternity is mine with him. And in the, in the grand scheme of things, that trumps everything. I choose joy because I have his promise. They're through his word. If I die tomorrow, I do not cease to exist. I merely change locations. I change locations and go to be with the one who has promised us eternity with him. So my last question is, the title of this message was very specific. It's not, I find joy. It's not, I pursue joy. It's not, I hope to one day attain joy. The title of the message is, I choose joy. How in the world do you choose joy? Do you get up and put yourself in a positive mindset? You reject the negative influence of the people around you? Do you get up and put your mindset on, on the positive things? You find the silver lining on any cloud? Do you look at the bright side all the time, no matter what it is? Did you, you just find the, the little nugget of positivity in everything. I walked in the fries today, and, the, and there was a sign that's been up there for weeks. It says, find the good in every single day, even if, it, uh, even if some days you've got to look a little harder. Is that the key? Is that the key? As you're forced to wear a mask in that store, is that the key? 
to choosing joy? Nope. Is the power of positive thinking as the saying goes? Is that the way to choose joy? Nope. Because the power of positive thinking is ultimately flawed. Why? Because it relies upon our human power. Anything that requires you to not fail is destined to fall apart. Why? The power we have will eventually run out. The discipline we employ will eventually give way. And the persistence we show will eventually subside. You do not have enough strength, will, or discipline to win every single time and navigate your entire life without failure. You will succumb to your limitations. So I don't care how positive you start the day with. I don't care how many affirmations you hear on the way to work on, you know, on some podcast as you're driving down the road. That does not last. So if that's not how I choose joy, how do I choose it? Romans 15 verses 13 makes it pretty clear for us. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. How do I choose joy? I continually trust in Him regardless what's going on. I choose joy by reminding myself in every circumstance that God wants us, gladly adopted us, and will never disown us. I choose joy by reminding myself in every circumstance God gave us His Word to teach, understand, and guide us. I choose joy by reminding myself in every circumstance that God made us a promise of eternity with Him. That's why I will choose joy.